And so with that, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. Just in the book of 1 John, chapter uh, 4, the first three verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now is already in the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as I stand before these, your, your precious people, Lord, I am fully aware of, of my inability to do anything apart from you. So, Lord, I lean on you and your spirit, Lord, to bring your word forth to, to us, Lord, that we can, we can grow, we can know you better, we can be better equipped to serve you, and that we can love you more and want each other more, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Uh, we are uh, studying the book of First John on Wednesday nights. And a few weeks ago when we did this first part of chapter 4, you know, I thought to myself, if I ever need to fill in for Pastor Bill again, I want to do these first three verses. I didn't know it would be quite this soon, but you know, I'm glad to uh, get the opportunity to be up here uh, to do this. So, in my message today, probably will be just a little bit different than what I, I normally do. Of course, it's been so long since I've been here, you don't know what I normally do. But, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination for a few minutes. That won't be a problem for a lot of you. So, And I want you to imagine that it's the year 85. The Christian church is less than 100 years old. You don't know it yet, but you're about to face persecution from the Roman Empire. And many of your brothers and sisters will be, be killed for the faith. But right now, you're gathered together in a large room that's owned by one of the members of your congregation. And the person you're listening to is a recent convert. Of course, everybody in the room is a recent convert. The Lord's Supper, which you have just partaken of, where you remember the Lord's death and resurrection by partaking of the bread and the wine, is, has just been completed and the uh, person that you are listening to is a fellow believer who's uh, teaching and sharing some information that he has received from his cousin who is a member of the uh, church in Philippi. Now, the only thing close to a Bible in the whole gathering is a copy of Paul's letter to the Philippians and a part of the Gospel of, of Mark. But then again, there's only two people in the whole congregation that can read, so 
you kind of have to rely on them for your your instruction. And the person speaking happens to be one of the two people who can read, and he is explaining some of the things that Paul wrote to the Philippian church as his cousin explained them to him. And some of what he's explaining seems a little strange to you because you have no previous knowledge of the Old Testament. In fact, you're not even totally sure what the Old Testament is. About all you know is that it has something to do with the Jews' religion, but most importantly, it foretold the coming of a Jew named Jesus who was to be the Messiah and ever since you heard about him and you knew it had to be true so you trusted in him that he would take away your sins and since then your life has been different in fact you have a desire to pray to him to talk to him and just a burning desire also to learn of him you can't you can't get enough, you know, you can't get too much of instruction on Jesus. So you're hanging on to every word that the speaker says. And he only talks for a few minutes, then he sits down and as the custom is, you know, he sits down and allows for another speaker to get up. So another person gets up and begins by saying, Brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, I have something to say regarding this man Jesus who was sent by God to be Savior of the world. In order to truly follow him in the salvation he brings, it is necessary to know necessary to know who he is. And in your heart you shout, Yes, yes, tell me more, tell me more. And I'm gonna add in a little parenthetic here, you know, stay in your imagination. But I just want to remind you that what I am about to say is wrong. <laughs> it is what the false teacher is saying, not what the gospel is. I just wanted to reiterate that so you won't think I really lost my mind. <clears throat> so he goes on to say, You know from your own life experience that the flesh is nothing but trouble. You may have heard that the prophet Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the Apostle Paul wrote, you know, in my flesh dwells no good thing. So then how could God, who is spirit and who is perfect, allow himself to inhabit wicked flesh and cause himself to become sinful like we are? Well, he's not going to do that. The flesh is wicked, but God is good. Man is wicked, so the idea that God could become a man is unthinkable. What I'm telling you is that Jesus only appeared to be a man. That way, God could walk on the earth and relate to mankind and, and still could perform all the signs and miracles that only God could do. Those who saw him thought that he was a man, but I tell you, it was in appearance only. He was God, not man. You need to know and understand this because the more knowledge you can obtain to the true nature of God and Jesus, the closer to salvation you can become. Now suddenly that warm and 
comfortable feeling you had when you heard the words of the first speakers gone and replaced with confusion. Something is wrong. Could his words be true? It kind of makes sense, but you don't know. Okay, let's come back to Calvary Chapel in uh, real time now. Back out of your imaginations. Out of this fictional account, and it was fictional, I made it up, but it is something that could very well have happened. In fact, did happen, maybe not in the exact words that I told, but it did happen in the, in the early church. In the latter part of the first century, a religious system known as Gnosticism arose that very soon took on quasi-Christian undertones. Gnostics came to the conclusion that all matter is evil or at best unreal, and a human being is in reality a spiritual being that somehow became imprisoned in a material body. And since the body is a prison to the spirit, it misguides us to our true nature. The body is evil. Therefore, the Gnostic's final goal is to escape from the body and from the material world in which we are exiled. Our spirits are asleep, and in order to awaken them, someone must come from the spiritual world and remind us of who we really are and call us to struggle against our incarceration in these mortal bodies. <clears throat> this message brings messenger brings the gnosis or knowledge necessary for salvation. And that's how the Gnostics saw Jesus. They taught that Jesus took on human form in order to lead mankind back to the realization of its divine nature. So, obviously, Jesus couldn't have been a man. Since Jesus was a messenger from the spirit world, they rejected the notion that he had a body like ours. Some taught that his body was just an appearance, sort of a ghost, and somehow seemed to be real. Some distinguished between the heavenly Christ and the earthly Jesus. That Jesus became the Christ at his baptism, and the Spirit, the Christ Spirit, returned back to its heavenly origin just before he died. Still others taught that Jesus did have a material body, but for and somehow, and they can't explain a lot of what they believed, somehow it was made it was a material body, but it was made of spiritual material. The Gnostics didn't agree on a lot of their teachings, but one thing they were adamant about and, and, and believed very strongly, that was that Jesus did not have a natural birth. He could not have come into the material world in, in a natural way. So according to their teaching, how was a person to live in this material world? The Gnostics were kind of divided on that answer. Some said the body and its passions being evil must be controlled to the fullest extent possible and thus weaken its power over the spirit. Others said, just let the body do what it wants to. It doesn't matter because it's going to be destroyed in the end anyway. So... See what John was faced with? 
And this is why he was writing this letter to warn the churches about such teaching that we now call Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, you know, for knowledge. And since John was associated with the church at Ephesus in his later life, it is thought that he very likely was writing to the church of Ephesus initially, but the letter is for all churches for all times. But the church at Ephesus seemed to have been a, a hotbed of, of false teaching. You know, the Apostle Paul, on his third missionary journey, when he was heading, heading back, uh, he uh, met with the Ephesian elders and warned them. He said, you know, ravenous wolves from your own congregation are going to come in and try to destroy the flock. So be on guard. And sure enough, you know, that has happened, just, just as Paul said it would. So, so John writes, <clears throat> Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. By spirit, John is referring to the spiritual origin behind the false teachings, the false prophets. The term prophet in the New Testament does not necessarily mean somebody who is going to tell the future, but it is someone who supposedly speaks for God, speaks the word of God. So <clears throat> these false teachers didn't make this stuff up in their own head you know, any more than the apostles, you know, Paul and Peter and, and, and John who, who wrote the New Testament uh, made up the gospel because Peter wrote you know we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses and there is a spiritual force behind the false teaching as well as the Holy Spirit behind the true teaching and this spirit behind the false teaching, though it is his spirit, it is de demonic. So John is saying, test the teaching. Test the prophet. Test the spirit behind it. Determine their, sport, their source. And don't listen to just anybody. Uh, you know, we constantly hear from the world, doesn't the Bible say, judge not? But that's only because people don't want to be confronted by their own sin. They like the verse in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, judge not. Because they think that Jesus is teaching acceptance of, of any lifestyle. But you know, just a little farther in the same sermon, Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad, bad tree, tree <laughs> bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. <clears throat> So he's saying, before you decide to follow any teacher, 
Look at the trail behind them. See what kind of fruit has fallen from their tree. David Gutzik writes in his commentary on 1 John, It is the responsibility of every Christian, but especially of the congregational leadership, to test the spirits or test the teachers. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Let two or three prophets speak, let others judge. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Test all things, hold fast what is good. Testing the spirits is the work of the body of Christ. It is our responsibility to do that. And this job is to be done using the gift of discernment that God has given to all of us. You know, it is not wrong to test things. And one thing about the truth, the truth will stand up to any legitimate test you try to put it to. I know a lot of people kind of recoil at the idea of having their faith tested. If your faith won't stand up to the truth test, any test that you want to put before it, it is not the truth and you should want to know that. The truth will stand up to any legitimate test you put it to. You know, we may wonder how in the short lifespan of the church, you know, at this point in time, the early first century, that... uh, Satan was already so much at work trying to destroy it, but it shouldn't surprise us. You know, he didn't waste any time trying to destroy the work that God was doing. And if he could do so much damage in a brief span of time, just think what he has been able to do in the last 2,000 years. But I don't want to give him too much credit, though, because there's, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes said, there's nothing new under the sun. All Satan can do is recycle the same old methods that he has always used. Gnosticism was refuted by the early church by the end of the second century, but it keeps coming back in modern ideologies, such as the New Age movement, which is making headway among in many of our mainline denominations. Now, I heard just this week at, at breakfast, and David may have heard this too, the pastor of one of the churches in town, you know, a mainline church, was admonished by his bishop for using the pronouns, the pronoun he and him and referring to God. Now, Things like the New Age movement are are very prevalent now in our mainline denominations. Things like Christian science, which is neither Christian nor scientific, but they don't believe that the material is real. Mormonism, so forth, we we could make a long list. So we in the church today have the same responsibility to test the spirits as much as they did in John's day when he was writing this letter. So how do we test the spirits? He says, By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. So that's the acid test then. 
It was then, and it is today. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is central to everything. You know, when you think about it, there's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't give us much instruction about. You know, like how how we are to worship, for example. Yeah, we're told we are to worship in spirit and in truth. And Paul gives us some instruction about the Lord's Supper, how to do it, or more specifically, how not to do it. You know, and Paul tells us, you know, which I read a minute ago, you know, let two or three speak and the others others judge. But other than that, you know, he doesn't say much about how we are to worship. You know, on one hand, we have high church, highly liturgical, highly structured. And on the other hand, we have more loosey-goosey, if you will. You know, and everything in between. And God seems to be okay with both. You know, many, many great preachers, great Bible teachers, and very devout Christians have come from, you know, high church tradition. Many, many great preachers, great Bible teachers, wonderful Christian people have come from the loosey-goosey end of it. And every place in between, which is kind of where we find ourselves here in Calvary Chapel in Princeton today. So, and there's nothing wrong with having a variety of methods of worship. You know, I think the Lord wants us to be where we are, are comfortable being. You know, and some of us meet in elaborate cathedrals, you know, ornate churches, ornate buildings, some in brush arbors. Some of us meet in old USDA office buildings. Yes. Yeah, that doesn't seem to matter either. It's only when we take our eyes off Jesus that the place of worship and the method of worship becomes more important than the one that we are gathering together to worship. But now on the other hand, the Bible is very explicit about just who Jesus is and will not allow for any variation. In fact, Paul is so adamant about it that he says in uh, Galatians uh, 1 and 8, but if we, and that is Paul himself or any of the apostles, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. And adamant he should be. For as Peter told the Jewish council, you know, when they were brought before the council for preaching Jesus, right at the very beginning of their ministry, it says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is very inclusive. Jesus is not a way to heaven. Jesus is the only way to heaven. And any other false presentation of Jesus is to present a false hope. You know, Satan delights in false hope. When John wrote this letter, the heresy of Gnosticism was just getting started. By the middle of the second century, it had grown to the point where it actually threatened the very life of the church. 
Now we know that God is going to always have his church. He would not allow it to go under. But Satan did tremendous damage you know, with his false teachers. And he's doing the same thing today. And it's up to us to help stop it you know, by, by judging. And it, we shouldn't confine our Christian activity to just in this building and in this room. But when we go out and talk to people, when we meet people, people who, who claim you know, to be followers of, the, followers of the Lord. So, you know, Satan knows his time is growing short. So his attacks, you know, are increasing. And this spirit of Antichrist that John speaks about here, this is the spirit of Satan set out to destroy the work of God. He's not talking about the man of sin, as Paul calls him in, in uh, Second Thessalonians, or the, the son of perdition. He is talking about you know, a spirit that is prevalent throughout the religious world. You know, the, return, the term Antichrist referring to uh, a particular individual is found nowhere in the Bible. John in, in First John in, in one one instance in Second John is the only time that that term is used. John is referring to a spirit that is opposed to Jesus, not to a particular individual, but many individuals that Satan is using as false teachers. Now, you know today many teachings divide us in the church. Teachings that. Well, they may be important, you know, as to, you know, some teach that you should baptize by immersion only. Some teach that Jesus is coming back before the seven years tribulation. Others teach that there is no seven years tribulation. Some emphasize the sovereignty of God and others the free will of man. But the really important question is, the main question is, the same question that Jesus asked Peter. He said, who do you say that I am? And there's only one correct answer. And that's the answer that Peter gave to Jesus. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. One of Satan's chief strategies is to present a Jesus that appeals to the natural man, but who isn't sufficient to save us. If he isn't God, he isn't perfect, and only a perfect sacrifice will do. If he isn't human, he isn't qualified to pay the price for our sins because it was man who sinned and man who must pay the price. Satan doesn't care if we believe in a Jesus. In fact, he's delighted if we do so as long as we don't believe in the real Jesus, the one that was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, taking the sins of mankind upon himself. The one that was buried and on the third day, third day arose and ascended into heaven and who now sits at the right hand of God ever making intercession for us. That Jesus, Satan can't stand. John wrote this letter addressing a particular problem. There, were, there are today false teachers who will confess that Jesus came in the flesh, that he is God, but teach that he, his 
sacrifice was not sufficient for us, that our works are also necessary for salvation. But knowing that John is addressing a particular problem here underscores the need that we have for in-depth Bible study to know who was writing a book, why they were writing it, what was going on, what what caused them to, to write this particular thing that, that they were writing. You know, God put his plan of salvation into effect from before the world was was began. Before the world began. And though Satan may try to tear it down, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is only one true Jesus. He is God. He is man. He is the one who can take away our sins. He is the one that we can put our trust completely in, knowing that he will see us through to the end. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we just thank you for bringing us together and thank you for for your word and for the assurance of our salvation, Lord, for the assurance that Jesus is who he said he was and that he will do what he said he will do, that we can put our complete trust and faith in you, Lord, and know that one day we will be forever with you when this earth is gone renewed the curse of sin is taken away and we can stand in your presence holy and just Lord thank you Lord in Jesus name hey if pastor